0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Arling Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Frances Nolan of University College Dublin. Her paper was entitled The Jacobite Woman. Female Outlaws After the Williamite-Jacobite War. So this paper will consider those women who were waived for both domestic and foreign treason during and after the Williamite War in Ireland. In the course of the 1690s, 23 women were attainted for high treason, 14 for domestic sedition and 9 for treason beyond the seas. The Book of Outlawries, contained in the appendages to the report of the Commissioners of Inquiry into the confiscated estates, included the names of prominent female figures like Frances Talbot and Honora Burke, but it also records the names of seemingly unremarkable individuals, such as six female members of the Brennan Sept from Kilkenny, three female miners, the mother of a yeoman and the wife of a merchant. This paper will explore the legal processes and the personal and political motivations behind the attainting of such an eclectic swathe of Jacobite women. It will thus explore the dynamics of female agency and culpability and illustrate the mixture of familial ties, religious and political affiliation, and proprietary concerns informed the attainder of the 23 women listed in the book of Outlawries. As J.G. Sims has observed, both the Williamite and Jacobite governments regarded their opponents as guilty of the offence of high treason, which included levying war against the king in his realm and adhering to his enemies in his realm or elsewhere. While the Jacobite Patriot Parliament in Dublin successfully passed an act of attainder in 1689, the riven nature of the government in London meant that the Williamite side failed to do so, despite the drafting of a series of bills throughout and following the war. Instead, attainders were sought on an individual basis, through indictment and trial by judge and jury. Only twenty counties, as well as the cities of Cork, Waterford, Kilkenny and Dublin, and the town of Drogheda, are represented in the outlawry lists, meaning that there is no record for those outlawed in twelve of the thirty two counties. As it is, those lists that are contained in the Book of Outlawries reveal very low numbers of attainted females. Of the 2,603 names on the Irish list, 14 are women. For foreign treason, 9 of the 1,261 named are female. Furthermore, only 23 women are represented in the lists of adjudications under the Articles of Limerick and Galway. Although statistically minute, the inclusion of women in the outlawry lists for high treason in Ireland and beyond the seas is significant not least because women could not actually be outlawed under common law. According to Giles Jacobs' A New Law Dictionary, women are not sworn to the king as men are to be ever within the law. Therefore, they are said to be waived, as not regarded, but forsaken by the law. And as such, waste and strays are said to be nullius and bonus, meaning they are among the goods of no person. While a woman was not deemed an outlaw, to be waived effectively imposed the same penalties and was accomplished through indictment and attainder. Furthermore, records from the time show that the word outlaw was used frequently and interchangeably with the tainted and waived. Although legally distinct, it appears that the criminal prosecution of women was considered the same thing in practice, and the waiving of a woman was achieved by the same means as the outlawry of a man. As already noted, the William government sought prosecutions for treason on an individual basis. This was achieved through a tainter by process, which was the result of a number of legal actions undertaken over a period of time. Following the production of a bill of indictment, a writ of capias was issued, and if the person accused was produced, they were bound over to appear at a later date, or they were placed on trial before a judge and jury. Following the William I. Jacobi War, the non-appearance of indicted individuals seems to have been a common occurrence. In such cases, after the issuing of a second warrant, the accused was declared non est inventus, and a writ of exigent was produced, commanding the sheriff to have the plaintiff called forth on five successive county court days. Subsequent failure to appear resulted in a declaration of outlaw. In, in cases of female attainder, the woman was declared waviata or waived. In addition to the common law differentiation between male outlawry and female waiver, it is important to recognise that, unlike a civil suit, criminal prosecution required a woman to be tried as a named individual. In the case of Catherine Luttrell, for example, um, the absence of her Christian name in a writ of exigent effectively voided her attainder. This point was argued some years after Catherine's actual indictment at the court, of, uh, the court of claims at Chichester House. There, the writ was read, whereby Simon Luttrell of Luttrellstown in the county of Dublin and Blank Luttrell, spinster uxor predict, are required, etc. Read too with the attendant judgment, whereby Simon Luttrell is outlawed and Blank Luttrell spinster, without the words uxor predict, uh, Simon is wavyata. Sir Stephen Rice, in a frequently colourful argument on her behalf, stated that the claimant is not named in the record. I do not say there is any error in the record. The parties therein named are outlawed. If the claimant be waived, she may be executed. Judgments may be pronounced against her by the judges in the King's Bench. In civil actions, the wife cannot be sued alone. She must be sued with her husband. In criminal actions, she must be sued alone. alone. Indictment is an action and indictments ought to be certain not to be supposed by intendment. Rice then argued that In our case here, there is no Christian name, unless Luttrell be taken for a Christian name, and that is not our Christian name. It may be that Simon had another wife whose Christian name was Luttrell. There may be two contesting wives, though, but one of them was properly (coughs) his wife according to our law. The judgment is not that the wife of Simon Luttrell is waived, but that Luttrell's spinster is waived. Such differentiation reveals a sort sort of disjuncture in the common law system. As Sir Stephen Rice argued, civil suits required a woman to be tried with her husband as a femme covert. In criminal proceedings, however, a woman had to be identified as nominally distinct and individual party. As suggested by the case of Catherine Luttrell, the technicalities surrounding the criminal prosecution of women were not readily apparent to all, not least to those actually waived. There appears, for example, to be some confusion on the part of the attainted Eleanor Baggett as to the process of criminal prosecutions against women. Baggett claimed in a petition to the English Parliament that she cannot by law recover the said annuity or any other right she has, for that John Baggett, her present husband, is outlawed in Ireland, and that your petitioner, though a femme covert, has been outlawed also, or waived there. Eleanor was not alone in that confusion. The case of Mary Skelton, wife of the Catholic English baronet Bevel Skelton, and daughter of Daniel O'Brien, third by Clare, and his wife, the attainted Philadelphia, states that three of the trustees of the forfeited estates in Ireland reported that she was outlawed for treason when a married woman. In terms of chronology... It appears that the majority of women were not attainted by the close of 1691. A list presented to Sir Richard Reynold, the Chief Justice of the, uh, the King's Bench, indicates that only three women, all named in the domestic list within the Book of Outlawries, have been proceeded against by the time of the Treaty of Limerick. These were Blank Lumbert, mother of William Lumbert of Shankill in County Cork, Eleanor Gould, alias Baggett, wife of John Baggett, who was also outlawed, and Uxor, meaning wife of, Richard Hartry of Cologne in County Waterford. Reynolds' list also includes the name Oliver O'Gara, whose wife Mary, daughter of Randall Fleming, Lord Slane, is later included in the domestic outlawry lists. The comparatively small number of women in the list presented to Renal begins to make sense when it's noted that it excludes the names of the nine women who were waived for foreign treason, with the majority of those attainders secured some five years later in 1696. It also does not contain the names of any of the six Brennan women from Kilkenny who were included in the Dublin civil lists. Nor does it include the names of Mary O'Gara, Mary Skelton, and Mary Lavalin, and it omits Frances, Lady Tyrconnell, and Charlotte Talbot, the daughter of Lord Tyrconnell from his first marriage. The mystery of certain omissions are easily solved. For example, Lady, Lady Tyrconnell and her stepdaughter were not attainted until the quarter sessions at Kilmainham in April 1693. And as for the Brennan women, a royal warrant to Sir Christopher Wandesford concerning legacies given by his grandfather, the then Lord Deputy of Ireland, to several native Irish who were his then tenants and were part of the sect called the Brennans, states that their estates were found forfeit by an inquisition at Kilkenny on the 23rd of May 1694. The charging of the Marys O'Gara, Skelton and Lavalan is less clear Although the fact that they are included in the 16th list of outlawries for Dublin indicates that they were tainted sometime between the drafting of Raynell's list in 1691 and the inclusion of Frances and Charlotte Talbot on the 17th list for Dublin in early 1693. While it is important to understand how and when women were prosecuted, it is equally essential to understand why they were charged with treason in the first place. First, it is important to distinguish between the legalities that informed a and the reasons individual women were tainted. In other words, it is necessary to distinguish between charges used to indict and waive individual women and the motivations behind their outlawry. In terms of prosecution, the primary charges levied against Jacobites were the taking up of arms against the Crown or service in James II's civil administration. Although there is evidence of female participation in the conflict, women were not recognised as militarily active, nor were they civilly employed. It is therefore unsurprising that few would be waived or seek protection under the Articles of Limerick or Galway. However, charges included in Charles Leslie's tract, an answer to a book entitled The State of the Protestants in Ireland, shine a light upon one of the reasons for the indictment and attainder of certain women during the Williamite Jacobite War. Within the appendix of Leslie's answer are queries (coughs) proposed by the Grand Jury of the City of Dublin to the judges and resolved by them November 21st, 1690. Query 5 deals exclusively with the wartime activities of women that might be deemed treasonous. It is asked whether Popish widows who were such before the present rebellion and do still continue widows and have jointures and that have abetted the rebellion in maintaining soldiers in their houses for their children who took commissions and acted thereby in this rebellion ought to be indicted for treason or not to which the judges responded, yes. As the 14 women in the domestic lists of outlawry were indicted and prosecuted for high treason on grounds unrelated to active military service or civil employment, it is likely that those women who might be considered ordinary, like Lumbert, Hartree and the Brennan women, were attainted for harbouring or assisting Jacobite troops. The description of William Lumbert as a merchant in the, in the Cork City list and the inclusion of Richard Harty as a yeoman in the Waterford list indicates their mother and their wife respectively could have raised and maintained soldiers in their houses for their sons or others. All of this is only educated speculation of course and the specific details of the actions that informed these seemingly unremarkable women's attainder will likely be never known. Likewise, there are no records of the specific charges brought against the Brennan women. In their case, however, the description of the old Irish family, provided by Wandersford, albeit coloured by personal interest, may give some indication as to why they were attainted. The said sects, being still very numerous, are a great terror to the English inhabitants there, and frequently commit many great robberies and murders, and were in arms for the late King James, and as Sir Christopher was early in arms for King William, they persuaded the Earl of Tyrconnell to seize his estate, and again possess the same for a considerable time. The motivation behind the attainting of some women is more readily apparent than the reason, reasoning behind the charging of others. Naturally, identity was of central importance, especially <coughs> in cases involving women of higher social status. Women like Honora Burke, daughter of the Earl of Clanrickard, wife of Patrick Sarsfield, and then the Duke of Berwick, or Philadelphia O'Brien and Mary Skelton, wife and daughter respectively of, third, of Daniel the Third, Viscount Clare, were waived as much for their familial and political connections as for any deliberate act of treason. The case of Frances Lady Tyrconnell and that of Charlotte Talbot, the sole daughter of Lord Tyrconnell, perhaps best illustrates certain issues surrounding familial connections and female political identity. Frances was indicted for high treason at Kilmainham in 1693, and a warrant to stop proceedings against her issued to Lord Sydney on Queen Mary's orders. Nonetheless, expresses the view that she, in her Jacobite activity in those times, exceeded most others of her sex. Indeed, such was Lady Tyrconnell's reputation that a letter to Francis from her sister Sarah Churchill chides that the charge against her is such a one was never heard of. It is likely that Frances' extraordinary activity centred somewhat on the fact that she received the defeated James in Dublin after the rout at the Point. In a widely circulated but likely apocryphal exchange between the two, a fleeing James greeted Francis by saying, your countrymen, "'Your countrymen, madam, can run well.' To which she replied, "'Not quite so well as your Majesty, for I see you have won the race.' Albeit an invented account, the accepted notion that the Irish were Francis's countrymen exposes certain perceived fluidities in female identity. By birth, Francis was English, her father Richard Jennings was a parliamentarian and an MP for St Albans in Hertfordshire, and her sister Sarah would marry John Churchill, later becoming Duchess of Marlborough and Queen Anne's most powerful female subject. It was Francis's two marriages, first to George Hamilton and then to Tyrconnell, that brought her to Ireland and placed her foremost among the Irish Jacobite wives. Lady Tyrconnell's flight into France left her open to prosecution for foreign treason. But within the Book of Outlawries, she's included in the domestic list for Dublin, along with her stepdaughter, Charlotte Talbot. Charlotte, Charlotte, who was a minor in 1690, stated in a later petition to Parliament that, "'Soon after the Battle of the Boyne, "'your petitioner being then but nine years old, "'was carried by your mother-in-law, the stepmother, "'the Countess of Tyrconnell, from Ireland to France, "'where your petitioner has continued ever since, "'having no estate in England or Ireland to return to for her support.' that your petitioner stands outlawed, as she has lately been informed, for going into France. Although the petition states that Charlotte Talbot was outlawed for going to France, her identity as the daughter of Turconnell ensured that her attainder predated the wave of convictions for foreign treason by some three years. Charlotte's minority and the fact that she was carried into France illustrate the lack of any determinant treasonous action on her part. She was instead attainted for the sins of her father and her stepmother. Just as family doomed her, so too it spared her as through the intercession of her step-aunt, Sarah Churchill, her attainder was overturned through um, a private act in 1702. Lady Dillon, Frances' daughter from her first marriage to George Hamilton, wrote to her aunt, proclaiming that she, Charlotte, owes it all to my dear Lady Marlborough, who has no greater pleasure than to make use of her power in relieving the oppressed and endowing all that is good and great. If Charlotte Talbot can be considered both a victim and a beneficiary of familial connections, Francis might be considered one of the few examples of a woman being justifiably identified and penalised for Jacobitism. In fact, references to female Jacobite or papist activity throughout and after the war more commonly pertain to women who were never actually attainted but were equally affected by the outlawry of male relatives and equally invested in the Jacobite cause. Lady Mary Bellew, for example, was identified by an informant on Irish papist activity in London as a cunning, intriguing woman who is very violent against the Protestants, as her husband and son are, who are both in command in the Irish army. To suppose she continues in this town only to do service to their cause and is very capable of doing it. In another instance, Helen Arthur, a niece of Lord Triconnell's, was identified in a pamphlet entitled The Popish Pretenders to the Protestant Estates in Ireland as being so zealous for the cause... That fearing her husband, who had an inclination to stay, should lay hold of the benefit of the articles and return to his habitation, she immediately conveyed herself and her other children into France as the greatest inducement for him to follow. In contrast, the petition of the attainted Mary Vernon of Clontarf in County Dublin states that she was born and bred in England, never was in Ireland, and went into France before the war on the advice of her physician, who treated the then 10 year old girl for consumption. Mary Vernon's petition goes on to state that in the year 1697, some envious person designing to deprive your petitioner of that little remnant of estate, um, caused your petitioner to be outlawed in Ireland for high treason. In fact, Mary's situation is mirrored by other cases. Jane Levalin, for example, was sent into France with her grandfather and during her continuance there was indicted in Ireland for high treasons supposed to be committed by her in parts beyond the seas upon the 6th of August 1694, at which time she was at the age of seven years, eight months, odd days and no more. Jane's father Patrick had died in London in 1687 and her mother Eleanor, who later married John Bagot, was waived too. Both mother and daughter petitioned Parliament, and it appears that both outlawries were procured through the efforts of Peter and Melchior Levallon, Jane's uncles. Jane's petition claimed that, by reason of the said attainder, your petitioner is disabled to defend her title to the said estate against Melchior Levallen, brother to your petitioner's said deceased father, who, by virtue of some pretended settlement, hath possessed himself of all the estate of your petitioner's father. Eleanor's echoed the sentiment, stating that, although she had for these many years last past, endeavoured to bring him, Melker, to some reasonable terms, yet she has not been able to prevail with him to do her justice. All of this begs the question as to why some women, despite being identified as zealously and actively Jacobite or Papist, were never charged with high treason, whereas others, who had no obvious political motivation, were attained and forfeited their estates. Evidence clearly suggests that the religio-political identity played only a part in the attainting of women throughout and following the William I. Jacobite War. This is evidenced in the difference between the motivations for attaining women for domestic sedition and foreign treason. Whereas the majority of domestic female cases were driven by familial connections and religio-political identity or activity, the motivations behind a number of cases for foreign treason are undeniably linked to familial property disputes. This is not to say that property did not figure in domestic cases. Indeed, the loss of a considerable estate features prominently for at least five domestically waived women. It is to say, however, that property was not the primary motivation for the majority of domestic outlawries, but it was the primary incentive in the pursuit of at least five foreign cases. Women waived domestically were, for the most part, identified under more proactive and political terms, whereas women waived for treason beyond the seas were by and large identified for prominent familial connections and property titles. As such, to look to the list of women waived for domestic and foreign sedition as an answer to who or what constituted a Jacobite woman is to look at a very small piece of the puzzle. The list of women from the Book of Outlawries does not give any sort of definitive, but it does offer considerable insight into a composite of characteristics that inspired accusations of female Jacobitism. Among them are fam- familial connections, both biological and marital, social rank, religio-political identity and or activity, flight to the continent property ownership and plain bad luck. Thank you.